know, there's a very large difference between you being on a raft going down, you know, the Amazon River and some, you know, beasts jumping out and snatching you <laughs> off of the raft and another and, and you jumping off the raft yourself. There are two very different kind of things going on. And, you know, it's one thing for Jesus to say nobody can snatch us out of the father's yeah. hand. It's another thing for him to say you cannot escape on your own once I've got you. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. It, it, you know. Once again, you know, you're really improving on your your analogies here. I think that's another winner. That's exactly right. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to another goal-oriented and solutions-minded episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague, Ken Hensley. We are with the Coming Home Network. If you want to know more about our apostolate, which is all about helping people with questions about the Catholic Church, uh, some of those are theological, some of those are just kind of, how do I make this work in my life kind of questions, mm -hmm. please do contact us, chnetwork.org. We have a whole community of people just like you who are at various stages of the journey, some of whom have walked the road you've walked. So reach us reach out to us at chnetwork.org and subscribe yes. if you enjoy what we're doing here. Ken, how are you? I'm I'm doing well, Matt. Good to see you again. All right. You ready to answer the question that Jimmy Aiken and Tim Staples and Carlo Broussard get over at Catholic Answers a thousand times a day about whether you can lose your salvation? Yes. I think we're ready to talk about it. Yes. Well, it is a hot mm -hmm. topic, and it's something that Certainly as a Wesleyan Arminian, I believe you mm -hmm. could lose your salvation. Trust me, I heard many sermons about this. But from the Reformed tradition, uh, not so. And that's where you came from, right? That is correct. And um, let me put this in the context, I guess. We're we're beginning to wrap up a series that you and I have been doing for a, a, a long time. I have 16 episodes, I think, already on justification by faith alone on the Reformation doctrine. That is critiquing the Reformation doctrine comparing it to the Catholic doctrine, um, me explaining you know, the story of how I came from the one to the other. And we're beginning to wrap this up. And so what we're doing now is we have just kind of a couple of topical issues that are really crucial that I wanted to hit on here at the end. And this is definitely one of them. I mean, this is a subject that divides Christianity in half. The question, can salvation be lost? And uh, to be clear on that, can someone who has been justified through faith in Christ Jesus, who has become an adopted son or daughter of God, not make it to heaven? Um, that's the question we're asking. Okay, and there's a lot to talk about today. I haven't looked at uh, Jimmy Akins or Tim Staples, so I don't know what they're saying about this, but... They're saying a lot of these things. They're saying okay. a lot of these things. But that's because this is the Catholic teaching that we're going to get into, yeah. and it's pretty much the standard of what we believe as Catholic Christians. It's the historical teaching of Christianity. So let's let's dive right in, my friend. Yeah, and this is one where I'm where I was coming from the Reformed tradition. So this is one where I had a conversion on this topic, okay? And you're right. There's a lot to cover, so let's dig right in. To begin, I want to begin by saying this. I think I really think that anyone who would who simply read the Bible through with no preconceived theological reason for denying what it says, I think that anyone would admit yeah, it seems like salvation can be lost. It seems like it. Okay, it's clear in the Old Testament to begin. In Psalm 51, we find King David praying, 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy steadfast love. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Apparently, at least David believed that he could be cast away and that the Holy Spirit could be taken from him. And David was the Lord's anointed. So, um, yes. of course, Saul was the Lord's anointed before him, and we know that Saul um, had some. The had Spirit some did bad depart turns. him. The, yes. The Spirit so. did depart him, just like the Spirit could come to the temple that Solomon had built. And then when the people had apostatized, the Spirit could leave the temple. The Spirit came to Saul. The Spirit left Saul. David is praying here, take not your Holy Spirit from me. In Ezekiel 18, we find God speaking through the prophet, but if a wicked man turns away from all his sins which he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does the same abominable things that the wicked man does, shall he live? And the answer that is given is no, he shall not live. So it's in the Old Testament, but it's also the same in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verses. I'm going to kind of wing through several verses so that those listening can just hear the impact of, of these. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, um, St. Paul recounts the story of the Israelites in the desert on their way to the promised land. He reminds his readers, who are Christians in Corinth, that even though they, that is the Old Testament Israelites, even though they had been baptized into Moses, even though they had been given by God everything that they needed to make their way to the promised inheritance, many of them didn't make it. Instead, he says, they fell dead in the wilderness. And then comes the dreaded punchline, quoting Paul, now these things happened to them as a warning and were written down for our instruction, you Christians in Corinth. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands Take heed, lest he fall. Apparently, according to Paul, it's possible to fall. According to everybody that you've read so far, it's possible to fall. And if we are people, and you are people who believe in the perspicacious nature of Scripture, that it should be pretty clear that anybody yeah. can pick this up and know what it means. Then so far, what we've learned from what you've yeah. just said, and we're only halfway through these references— it yeah. seems pretty clear that you got to stay the course or you can lose your salvation. Yeah, and it's, it's not just a passage here or there. There are many more in Colossians chapter 1, verses 23 through 20, uh, 21 through 23. St. Paul writes, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. That's how he opens the letter. So he, he's writing to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. And this is what he says. He tells them that Christ has reconciled them to God, past tense, in order to present them quoting Paul again, holy and blameless and irreproachable before the Father. And then comes the warning, provided, Paul says, that you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard. Apparently, according to Paul, it's possible for someone who has been reconciled, past tense to God, to not continue in the faith and, and, and wind up not being presented on that final day, holy and blameless and irreproachable before the Father. Another passage in Hebrews chapter 3, 12 through 14, and this is one that always bothered me, I mean, for my years as a Calvinist. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. For we have come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at the first. And it's the passion of this entire passage, Matt, that really got me, because why would the author, why why would he say things like, you know, encourage one another daily as long as it is still called today? Why would I need to encourage you so, the, so that none of you might be hardened by sin's deceitfulness and fall away from the living God if it's not possible? I mean, I mean apparently the author of Hebrews believes that it is possible to be a brother and then to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, to turn away from the living God. I'm just quoting his words again to not hold their confidence firmly to the end, and to wind up not sharing in Christ. Okay, and there are a bunch more passages, many more like these, including, for those who are taking notes, maybe Ezekiel 33, look that up, Hebrews 10, verses 36 through 39, 2 Peter 2, verses 18 through 22, and then a number of other passages that we're going to come to shortly. And Ken, uh, just to be clear, again, this is this take on Christianity was the take that I grew up with, that you could lose your salvation. We even had a word for it in my Wesleyan holiness tradition, backsliding, uh, the various churches. Backsliding, yeah. right? It was backsliding. And uh, this is something that could uh, is a severe danger to your soul. And if you don't correct it and you die in that state, then I'm sorry, buddy. Game over, <laughs> right? So that's why in my tradition, altar calls were such a, a, a an essential staple of, of our worship was give that invitation to come back and rededicate your life to Christ. And some people do it every week, right? Because of that which is sort uh, of, fear of backsliding. Which is sort of like the author of Hebrews saying, encourage one another day after day to make sure you're not allowing yourself to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, there are some other passages we're going to look at, but we're going to look at them in, in terms of common objections at this point, okay? The most common objections that I knew so well and that I heard and that I've heard a, a myriad time the most common objections to the Catholic teaching that salvation can be lost include the following, okay? The first objection usually goes like this. But Ken, Matt, what about where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. What about that? And here, here's the Catholic answer. It's, it's to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying in this passage and to listen as carefully to what Jesus isn't saying in this passage. On the one hand, Jesus is clearly saying that those who follow him will never perish. And we agree with that. We agree. And that no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And we, I, I would say we agree with that 100% as well. On the other hand, notice what Jesus is not saying. Where does Jesus say in this passage that someone who has come to him, someone who has begun to follow him, cannot at a later time decide to leave? He, he doesn't say anything about that. Where does Jesus say that a Christian cannot become hardened by sin's deceitfulness and make the choice to stop following him. Yeah, there's a very large difference between you being on a raft going down, you know, the Amazon River and some, you know, beasts jumping out and snatching you <laughs> off of the raft and another and, and you jumping off the raft yourself. There are two very different kind of things going on. And you know, it's one thing for Jesus to say nobody can snatch us out of the Father's yeah. hand. It's another thing for him to say 
you cannot escape on your own once I've got you. Yeah, right? yeah. It, it, you know, once again, you know, you're really improving on your your analogies here. I think that's another winner. That's exactly right. Yeah. You're getting me back in my practice. I feel like I'm back in Bible college because these yeah. are the arguments that we always had with me and my Calvinist yeah, friends. It's one so. thing to say that God is powerful and that once you're in the Father's hand, no one can snatch you out. It's another thing to raise the question, well, can I jump out? You know, can I jump off the raft if I want? Okay, to the second common objection, which is similar. It goes like this. And this, this one, again, extremely common. What about Romans chapter 8, Matt and Ken, where Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, Paul writes. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I mean, Paul is going as far as you can. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What about this? And again, the key, once again, is to simply notice carefully what Paul is saying and what he isn't saying. Notice first what Paul is saying. He's definitely saying that there is nothing in this world that is able to separate a Christian from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, things present, things to come, things in the past. No created thing can possibly separate us from the love of God. But then again, notice carefully what Paul doesn't say. For instance, Paul doesn't say to his readers, nothing can separate us from God's love. Not immorality, not idolatry, not murder, not adultery, not fornication, not apostasy. He doesn't notice, he doesn't list sins. He, he's listing things in this created universe and saying that they do not have the ability to separate us. He's not listing sins. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, Paul spells out a list of things, acts, that certainly can separate us from God. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are plain, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness. Those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 6 of Galatians, verses 6, 7 through 9, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to his own flesh, which he's just described in chapter 5, will from the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You read that and you think, well, what do you mean, Paul? How do we sow to the Spirit? What are you talking about? He, he tells us, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due time, in due season, we shall reap, that is the harvest of eternal life, if we do not lose heart. There's another one of those ifs, if we do not lose heart. Apparently, according to Paul, one can lose heart. One can stop sowing to the Spirit, begin sowing to the flesh. One can begin sowing to the flesh in these ways that he's described, fornication, impurity, idolatry, sorcery. And one can, in the end, not reap the harvest of eternal life. And again, back to this passage from Romans 8 that you led this little sec section off with, uh, what is Paul saying when he's saying about being separate? He's saying nothing can separate us from the love yeah. mm -hmm. of Christ. And not even those sins on that list that you just listed. 
can separate us from the love of Christ, right? That's infinite. Is Paul meaning to comment on the permanence of a decision to follow Christ? That, that is Paul meaning to comment on you know the once saved always saved question or is he meaning to speak of the depth and the infinite riches no you're right you're, of the you're right. infinite love of of Christ that that not even your own sins can separate you from the love of Christ we're talking about the love we're not yeah, talking but he certainly about isn't saying, you being in he, fellowship he certainly isn't saying right? in this passage that you can't fall away or that you can't lose your salvation yeah yeah right. that's not what he's intending to say okay uh, thank, uh, thanks for that very good okay a third response is to say something like this very common. In fact, this is sort of the bottom line response, really, most often, is to say this. But in, in all of these passages that you've read today, Ken, Matt, the biblical authors, they aren't talking about someone who is a true Christian, someone born of the Spirit who then drifts away and loses that. They're describing those who appear to be true Christians and then prove by their drifting away that they never really were. All right? So, they're not really talking about a true Christian born of the Spirit of God, a son or daughter of God who then falls away. They're talking about those who appear in every way, maybe, to be a Christian and then prove that they aren't. Okay, this is standard, as I said, and yet it, it, it simply doesn't hold water. So many passages um, go up against this, but there are two passages in particular that I found it very hard to explain in this way. And the first is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And I want those listening to simply hear this passage again. The author of Hebrews writing, he says, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then commit apostasy, it's impossible to restore them. It's very, very difficult to restore them if they commit apostasy, he says, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and they hold him up to contempt. Okay, first, just listen to how these people are being described, these people who apostatize and who cannot be won back, he's saying, or at least he's, he's making the point that it's very, it's very difficult. He uses the word impossible to win them back. He describes them as those who have been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, this is all in the past tense, who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, have tasted the powers of the age to come. Okay, and how do Calvinists teach? I mean, how do they explain this passage? How did I explain this passage at the time? Well, I have to admit, it was difficult for me to do it all the way back because it, it just seemed so far-fetched. But the way that this passage is actually explained by those who, are, who take the Calvinist position that salvation can't be lost, is essentially to say this. It's essentially to say, hey, listen, these people that he's describing here, it doesn't mean that they were true Christians themselves. When he says that they've tasted the heavenly gift, it just means that they were around, like they were in the church where the heavenly gift was being manifested and they saw it. That, that's what it means. When he, when he says that they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have been enlightened, again, it, it just means that they were there. You understand, Matt? I mean, they saw— <laughs> Yeah, I do. And this is, this is something that I feel like every single ideology has its own sort of way that Gnosticism can present within it. And that's, this is one of the ways that I feel like it presents inside of Calvinism, that 
you know, there are those who are here, but we know who's really supposed to be here. Yeah. Kind of this sense that there's this elevated group within the group that's like the the real group who secretly knows that they're supposed to be here. But there's a bunch of people who are not who are here, but we know they're not really supposed to be here. Kind of this this sort of creating like an invisible class system within Christianity. And that I mean, in my in my case with Wesleyan Arminiums, there was like the saved and then there was the mm-hmm, sanctified. Mm-hmm. Right. And and with even in Catholicism, there's like there's the Catholics who really get it. And there's, then there's the people just fill in the pews. You know, within all of these, there's there's sort of these structures that kind of lead us to say, well, really, they're just not actually our people. They just appear to be our people, which, again, creates like a weird sort of suspicion within the and system Matt, that who's really the true believer. I, I got to tell you, too, it's even worse than what you're describing is true. And it's even worse. I remember reading a um, pamphlet put out by a Reformed Baptist church that was giving um, instruction to pastors, pastoral care instructions, and it and it included this. It said, there will be people in your congregation who believe themselves to be born again and who are not. Okay, so so it's there not just a, the Gnostic thing of, of on... some who are and some who aren't. We're talking about people who believe that they are in every way. And yet they're not. They're I'll give not. you. I'll get you one worse All than right. that. On the floor of a prominent Baptist body, uh, a few years back, someone pre- presented a motion to uh, dispose of the use of the sinner's prayer uh, in in all in all kinds of services and communications because they didn't want people who are not of the elect to yeah. pray this prayer and then be under this, the false confidence that they were now the elect because they'd prayed the prayer when in fact yes. God had chosen them from. The beginning of all time to be condemned to hell. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you see the the mess this causes if you read it other than what the scripture presents. We've used the phrase "mind games" before, you know, and and yeah, yeah, it's a deep uh, neurotic. I mean, it, it could even be psychotic kind of hole that you can go into with this because this passage in Hebrews. I mean, basically, the way that I had to interpret it was to say. You know, okay, he describes them as those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy... You know, if you wanted to describe someone who was truly born of the Spirit of God, you couldn't You couldn't think of phrases that would more clearly describe that person. And yet, you have to read this passage and say, this is not describing a true Christian. This is just describing someone who's been around it, or someone who's experienced it, meaning experienced it in their neighbors or in the congregation, or maybe even those who believe themselves to be, but they're not, okay? So, but this passage just makes it very difficult to say that all these passages are just describing people who appear to be true Christians and yet are not. You know, you know. again, if you wanted to describe a true Christian, I don't know what phrases you could come up with beyond what the author of Hebrews says here to make it clear. I, I just don't know. I mean, unless you just said flat out, this person is 100% born of the Spirit of God, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You, have to, I, you couldn't make it more clear. Okay. But there's another passage that I think really slams the door on this idea that the New Testament authors never describe someone who has been forgiven by God and then turns away and loses that forgiveness. And I'm talking about Matthew 18. Um, the story that Jesus tells, a parable. Jesus tells the story of a king who forgave his servant a great debt that was owed to him. The servant then goes out, and you remember the story. He refuses, I mean, and he basically throttles another a fellow servant who owes him a much smaller debt and refuses to forgive him. So the king forgives him the large debt. He goes out and refuses to forgive 
a much smaller debt. In the story, the king calls his servant in and says this to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. And then here's the punchline. Jesus says to his disciples, to those listening, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Again, just read this in its simple sense. Apparently it's possible to be forgiven and then not. And yet when you listen to the way that Calvinist pastors preach on this passage, again, is this the most convoluted thing you've ever heard, Matt? In fact, I listened to one just about a year ago, and this is how it went. He read the passage, and then he said, what this passage is teaching us is this. If you have been truly forgiven by God, then you will go out and you will be someone that forgives others. And if you don't forgive others, then it just proves that you were never truly forgiven yourself, okay? I mean, that's how this passage was taught, even though Jesus says flat out here, I forgave you all that debt, you wicked servant. I I forgave you, and yet you wouldn't forgive, and therefore the forgiveness is rescinded. In other words, being required to preach the very opposite of what the passage says. And again, with all this, uh, this is how life actually works, right? You know, these are these are how situations work with relationships in our actual human lives, which is why Jesus used the example of yeah. an actual yeah. human relationship between a guy and some people who are under him. And what makes more sense that God would create an entire uh, world that seemed to function on these principles uh, that that communicated a certain thing about him, and that scripture story after scripture story after scripture story would be teaching in harmony, that Jesus, for his very parables, would look at the way the world works and normal human relationships works to tell us how God works, or the alternative, that God works the exact opposite of everything we see in creation, everything we see in human relationships, and everything we see in the scriptures. Which is more? Which is more yeah. probable? Well, I'm just ask. Yeah, and the answer, the, the question answers itself, and we've seen this a number of times. That's a really good point. It, it's true. Well, we've seen this when we were talking about justification. We were talking about other things as well. But yeah, it, it applies here. Okay, now there's a fourth objection, and which I tend to think really gets to the heart of why so many Protestants reject this teaching. Okay, it's that it's that the idea, the very idea that a true Christian could lose his salvation conflicts with their doctrine of justification by the legal imputation of Christ's righteousness. I mean, given the number of passages in both the Old and New Testament that that we've looked at here today that seem to clearly teach or imply that salvation can be lost, when I ask the question, what is it that motivates so many Protestants of the Reformed variety to want to find ways around all of these passages, sometimes amazingly convoluted ways around them, this is the answer that comes to me. It's that it, 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 the reason they have to reinterpret these passages is because it conflicts with their view of justification by legal imputation. After all, think about it, Matt. If at the moment you first believed in Christ, all of your sins, past, present, and this is important, all future sins had been forgiven and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ had been legally credited to your account, then how could I mean, just logically, how could any future sin you might commit affect that? 
After all, all your sins, past, present, and all the future ones were already forgiven. So it would be like double jeopardy. So it doesn't fit. And that's why I think, I mean, that's the basic reason why I think that um, Reformed Protestants feel the need to find ways around all of these very clear passages. The Catholic teaching, on the other hand, on salvation and the fact that salvation can be lost, it, it flows from a different view of what happens when we are justified, which you and I have seen in a number of episodes. It teaches that, that is, the church teaches that in justification we are forgiven for the sins we've committed, the stain of original sin is washed away, and we're given the ability to stand up, take up our mat, and walk, to love God, keep his commandments, persevere in this, and live. Like the Israelites, again, back to a story you know that is told that has a simple and clear application, like the Israelites on their journey to the promised land, God gives us everything that we need to reach our inheritance, including a means to receive forgiveness every time we fall. But then we must get up by God's grace and walk this path through the wilderness, through the desert of this world, to our eternal reward. It's just the, the story of the Israelites, just simply applied in a very natural way. And, and here's the thing once justification is understood in this way, and this really hit me, once I came to understand justification in the Catholic way, all of these passages we've read today could suddenly simply be read and they could be accepted in their natural sense. I didn't have to reinterpret them. I didn't have to like twist them and you know put them on you know on the on the rack and stretch them out of shape to make them work. I could just read them. Yeah, and this is something that I don't think a lot of people who are outside the Catholic faith understand. The impression is that the Catholic Church uh has the Bible kind of over here and then we really actually what we do is our own thing imposed by the bishops and the traditions and the magisterium and the Bible is just kind of this convenient book that we read from at mass and some people probably don't even realize how right. deeply we read from it at mass. Uh it, but what I found is that the more the, the closer I came to understanding what the church taught about various things, the more a lot of scriptures that didn't seem to make sense or that I had skipped over because I thought, well, maybe this is just a a heavy thing that or maybe this is just in there instantly started to click yeah, into place. It makes sense. And 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 suddenly suddenly the Bible actually did become perspicacious. <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. Suddenly the Bible actually I was like, oh, there's a place in the Catholic Church where they do something that refers exactly to what's happening here. I just thought it was kind of a throwaway passage of scripture. I just thought it right, was a nice little right, transition between right. parables. It all, all the pieces actually kind of fit. You don't have to stretch anything out of order. There's it corresponds sort of one to one with well with the way the early church who put the bible together that's would right. have used it that, that that's right and these passages we've looked at i mean quite naturally if you read them in their natural sense they seem to be naturally saying what they seem to be naturally saying and what we are able to receive and hear now and not forced to um you know again put them through uh, put them through the grill you know um, you know put them on the rack and stretch them around and torture them to make them say something the opposite of what they're actually saying Okay, it is possible to start out on the road to eternal life and not finish the course. It's just that that simple. It's possible. So let's turn the corner now and, and, and discuss the question: How does this work? How is salvation lost, and how is it regained? Now, within the Protestant world, as you know, being a Methodist holiness movement in the past, there are a number of denominations that teach that a Christian can fall from grace. Okay, 
your Methodist denomination, there are others as well. So it's not like all Protestants believe in the once saved, always saved doctrine. It, it, as it turns out, it, it's mainly the Reformed denominations, Calvinist denominations, and then the majority of modern evangelicals in America who, ha- who, ha- who happen to be Calvinistic on this particular point. But it's not as though the whole church believes that this or has, I mean, the whole Protestant church. In fact, it surprises many to learn that Luther himself, Martin Luther himself, believed that a Christian can fall from grace and can lose his salvation. And I want to quote now from the Schmalkald articles written by Luther himself in 1537 to summarize his teaching. And I want you to hear, I just want you to hear him in his own words, because this is such a surprising doctrine for many to hear. And this is 20 years after the, 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 yeah. the nailing yes. of the theses to the door. So he's a little bit more developed than he was. Yeah, this when he is just his developed anger, thought. Kind of and this is what he says. Some fanatics may appear who hold that once they have received the spirit or the forgiveness of sins, or once they have become believers, they will persevere in faith, even if they sin afterwards, and such sin will not harm them. Wow. He calls them fanatics who believe this. They cry out, do what you will. It matters not as long as you believe, for faith blots out all sins. They add that if anyone sins after he has received faith and the Spirit, he never really had the Spirit and faith, which is the objection we were just discussing. Luther, continuing, I have encountered many foolish people like this, and I fear that such a devil still dwells in some of them. It is therefore necessary to know and to teach that when holy people, Christians, aside from the fact that they still possess and feel original sin and daily repent and strive against it, When they fall into open sin, as David fell into adultery, murder, and blasphemy, faith and the Spirit have departed from them. Now, the distinction that Luther draws here, we're going to dig into Scripture a tiny bit here. The distinction that Luther draws here between sins that, his words, sins that arise from the fact that we still possess and feel original sin, okay, and what he refers to as open sin, quote-unquote, That is the kind of sin that David committed when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he had Uriah the Hittite murdered to cover up his adultery. This isn't a distinction that Luther is creating out of whole cloth or just pulling down out of thin air. This distinction has its roots in the Old Testament, where in Numbers chapter 15, Moses distinguishes between what he calls unwitting or unintentional sins and what he refers to as high handed sins. Okay, on the one side, you have unwitting, unintentional, small sins, as it were. And what he refers to as high-handed sins or, or blunt, um, blatant sins. This distinction also has roots in the New Testament, where in 1 John chapter 5, John draws a distinction between sins that do not lead to death and other sins that do. Okay, And this is... You can kind of see how this all flows together. This is the same distinction that Catholicism draws between what it refers to as venial sins and mortal sins. By the way, this is not a distinction that we drew at all in my tradition. It was, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the arguments that, you know, I came across in the holiness movement was that it's a sin to smoke a cigarette. It's also a sin to commit genocide. And in the eyes of God, so did you believe that if either you, way, you, so did you, you broke his commandment, you a cigarette, you had lost your salvation? And you had to get it back? Well, I didn't personally believe that, but that wow. was 
that was the line. No, but you know, well, the, that's because I also in the holiness movement. There's also this great tradition that you probably holiness movement doesn't look the mm-hmm. same in California. I, might, mm-hmm. I imagine, but in the Bible Belt, it looks like I don't smoke and I don't chew and <laughs> I don't go around with the girls who do. Okay, so you can see. I mean, a lot of people hear this distinction that Catholicism makes between venial sin and mortal sin, and it says, you know, where where do you get that? I mean, this is totally insane. And I I just want to bring out here that Luther makes this distinction himself when he talks about sins that simply arise from the fact that we still have this fallen nature within us, and what he calls open sins, the kind of sins that David committed. It has roots in Numbers 15 and Moses' distinguishment between unwitting, unintentional sins and high-handed sins. It has its roots in the New Testament in 1 John 5, where he distinguishes between sins that don't lead to death and sins that do lead to death. This is what Catholicism is talking about when it speaks of venial sins and mortal sins. In fact, I want to push this one step further. Listen to how one Calvinist theologian, okay, this is a Calvinist theologian, describes the difference between sins that are unwitting or unintentional, what we would call venial, and sins that are high-handed, what we would recall, I mean, what we would call mortal, and what Luther referred to as open sins. So this is a Calvinist writing. A high-handed sin is one a professing believer commits boldly and defiantly, not caring about the consequences and feeling no guilt about it once committed. It is a sin people commit fearlessly as they shake their fists literally or figuratively at the Lord. A sin committed with a high hand is not always the same thing as an intentional sin. All high-handed sins are intentional, but not all intentional sins are high-handed. Handed. So even this Calvinist theologian is drawing a distinction between one kind of sin and another. And I want you to notice how similar his description is to the definition of mortal sin that we find in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Very short definition. Mortal sin is a sin whose object is grave matter, that is, it's gravely sinful um, act, and which is also committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Sounds just like what the Calvinist is saying here about a defiant sin without caring about the consequences, feeling no guilt. You know, you're committing a mortal sin when you're committing a serious grave sin with full knowledge of what it is and deliberate consent, which is amounts to saying, hey, this is high-handed. I don't care. I'm going to do this. This is like David seeing Bathsheba. I'm going to do it. Come hell or high water. And if I get in trouble, I'll have Uriah the Hittite, you know, butchered on the front lines of battle to cover. You know, this is what we're talking about. So what is the effect then of mortal sin? Luther said that when we commit this kind of sin, these words are powerful. He says, faith and the Holy Spirit leave us, quote unquote. So again, Luther believed that you could lose your salvation. When this kind of sin is committed, he says, faith and the Holy Spirit leave us. Catechism of the Catholic Church puts it like this, quote, mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God. So when you put this all together, Matt, it it seems that the essential difference really between Luther's position and the Catholic position lies more in the question of what would be needed to restore someone who has committed mortal sin. It sounds sounds like Luther is agreeing with the Catholic Church on the on the teaching that mortal sin can separate uh, separates you you from God. So the distinction 
between the two, where the difference between the two is on the question of what is needed to restore one. And the Catholic teaching, um, again from the Catechism, says this, mortal sin, by attacking the vital principle within us, that is charity, necessitates a new initiative of God's mercy and a conversion of heart, which is normally accomplished within the setting of the sacrament of reconciliation. This restoration to grace, restoration to charity within the heart, restoration to salvation is accomplished within the Catholic setting, the sacrament of reconciliation, which um, which is a subject that we can't go off onto now, meaning that the case for sacramental confession is a case that we're going to have to make in another at another time. Um, it's based on a number of passages from the Old and New Testaments, definitely culminating in the upper room where Jesus breathes on his disciples and says and speaks those famous words, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven, whose sins you retain, they, they are retained. And as I read them, Matt, I'm thinking, this is another passage like the one you talked about a few minutes ago, it, it, where it's like, oh, this is this means what it says? This actually means what it says? Yeah, receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven, whose sins you retain, they are retained. And of course, the the Reformed or the Protestant way of interpreting this was again to, to have it teach something that it doesn't say, because the, the common way of interpreting it was to say, well, all Jesus means is that the disciples are going to go out and preach the gospel, and those who accept Christ will have their sins forgiven, and those who don't accept the gospel will have their sins retained. And yet Jesus says something that sounds a lot more specific than that. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Okay. But in the context, but again, that's some, the case for sacramental confession is not something that we can go off and deal with today. But in the context of the question we are addressing, whether salvation can be lost, it, it's enough that we simply state what the teaching of the church is on that. Um, let me wrap up with this then. Last week, you and I focused on justification as divine sonship. And I think this image of God as Father and we as his sons and daughters, I think that this image is an image that can really help us understand this issue that we focused on today about whether one could be a son, could be a daughter, and then lose that status. And I think that I think that we can see it just by asking a couple of questions. Just ask yourself, as much as a father loves his son, is it possible for a son to decide that he wants to leave the father's house? Certainly. And if a son wants to leave the home of his father, does a father normally force his son to remain or you know, compel his son to remain? Is he not allowed to leave if he wants to leave? And again, the answer is, yeah, yeah, he's allowed to leave. And no, it's not normal for a father to compel or force, uh, you know, grab his son and chain him in the room. If a son wants to leave, he can leave. And then one more question. If a son leaves his family, if a son renounces his family and says, I don't want this anymore, I'm leaving, does he normally inherit his father's estate? Well, Ken, you're presuming something that goes back to exactly what we were talking about in the last episode of On the Journey, which is... Salvation, yes, it's like a debtor being forgiven a debt, mm -hmm. right? Yes, it's like a courtroom, but it's most like the way that a family actually works, right? So if yes. if you can if you can renounce your inheritance, then you don't get it. You know, you can you can lose you can be cut off. You're not you're not cut off from your father's love. I mean, there are broken families in which that is the case, but the normative case is that 
No, I mean, you may be cut off from the love, yeah. uh, I mean, from the inheritance, but not from the love. You can reject that. You can reject the good gifts that are given to you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, again, it goes back to this question of God has sort of imprinted the way this works into things like the human family, into things like the way that creation is 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 renewed in the in, in the course of the seasons. This is this is the way that the world is created to work. Why wouldn't it be the way that salvation works too? Yeah, and that's why you know you think about Jesus in the parables, how he's just constantly referring to nature and just taking stories from nature and applying them directly. And as we mentioned in past episodes, Luther even did that. Luther used to say, I mean, I didn't say used to say, but Luther said, um, you know, in talking about faith and works and how they how they function together, he said, look at a farmer. A farmer goes out and he has to plant the seed, he has to water, he has to cultivate, he has to take care of it. But then it's God that sends the sunshine and the rain and causes it to grow. You know, all of these stories, um, they teach us the way things are. And the way things are in the created realm, you are right, is the way they are in the spiritual realm. And on this issue, though, listen to what Steve Wood has said in his book, Grace and Justification, An Evangelical's Guide to Catholic Beliefs, which I think is a really good um, book for understanding the Catholic teaching on justification, Grace and Justification by Steve Wood. This is what he says. God the Father doesn't force or compel his children to remain in a covenant relationship with him. If they willfully turn from him in mortal sin, he allows them to have their way, since it's not by law or compulsion that we stay in a relationship with the Father. This is the frightening freedom that love requires. So, yes, as a Catholic, I was led over time to accept what I kind of knew always that the Bible said, that the Bible taught, if read in a simple, straightforward way, it is possible to fall. It's possible to become hardened by sin's deceitfulness and to fall away from the living God, as the author of Hebrews says. At the same time, and I want to close with this, there is tremendous comfort in knowing as a Catholic that God has given me everything I need to make my way to the promised land, including a fountain of mercy that will never run dry, that is just always flowing, and that when I commit high-handed sin, if I commit open sin like David did, I can return to the Father at any time, just as the prodigal son returned. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, John writes, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. He's saying, I, I don't want you to sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the expiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then back to chapter one, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. In other words, as a Catholic, I like to put it this way, as a Catholic, I can know that as long as I want to be a son of God, I can be. <laughs> it's just like that. As long as I want to be in the Father's family, I can be. There is none of this mind game of maybe I've never truly been regenerated, but I think I have been, you know, but then if I fall into sin, maybe it's proving that I never really was regenerate to begin with. None of that. It's just straightforward. God's given me everything I need to make it to the end. And as long as I want to make it to the end, I can. Which is good news because, you know, for someone who's only ever believed once saved, always saved, and they hear that you can lose your salvation, that sounds like the worst news in the world, Right. But it's actually good news because what it means is that we have been given agency, the capability of love. It means God has not created us 
as automatons, he's created us as sons and daughters, which is really good news. Um, And it shows exactly what it means to be human. So we're still uh, we're still on this question of uh, the damning system of works righteousness. And uh, I think we got a little bit more, right? Well, we got one more episode where I want to want us just to focus directly on the issue of merit within Catholic theology, because that's something that really bothers non-Catholics when we talk about merit. Um, and so that's what we're going to focus on next week to tie to sort of tie the bow on this series for now. All right. Well, until then, please do click subscribe and uh, share this with your friends and spread the word about On the Journey with Matt and Ken, me being Matt Swaim, he being Ken Hensley. And we would yep. love to hear from you over at the Coming Home Network, CH Network. Dot org. In the meantime, thanks so much. Have a wonderful day. Good to see you, man. <laughs>